Hello, and welcome to the Good Life Community Church podcast. Wherever you are listening, we hope that you'll be encouraged, challenged, and that you would hear the invitation to be a part of the transformative work of God. <laughs> Last week, we started the most controversial series of recent times on the book of Revelation uh, on the day that we were going to um, hear about the, the emergence of a new war in the Middle East. And that wasn't planned on our part. But very timely as we unpack these issues. A um, few things I want to say before we jump into part two today. First of all, um, thank you for all the different um, responses and encouragement, all the dialogue and all the robust discussions taking place in life groups and online we had five times the amount of people uh, watch the video this week as normal. Podcast is going up. So I just realized from now on, we made a decision with our team. Every single week, no matter what we're teaching on, our series is, has got a tag. The end time, 666, and the end of the world uh, of some kind. And heaps more people listen if you put that in. But today is a day for us to wrestle with the core message of the book of Revelation and actually have our hearts and our minds challenged and encouraged at a time where what we're talking about is deeply relevant to the world that faces once again the pattern of the dream of the dragon and the beast, for there to be war and violence and pain and suffering. And the cycle continues. And today, in our own nation, we have mixed responses based on the referendum of yesterday. We have people that are grieving and that are deeply sad today. And we have people that are celebrating and are like really happy that the result that we got uh, is the result that it is. So what does it mean for us as followers of Jesus in all of the tensions that we find ourselves in in culture and society? What should our posture always be? Well, the theme of this series is this phrase. May we, as Jesus' faithful followers, Follow the Lamb into new creation. May we follow the slaughtered Lamb who is victorious into the new Jerusalem. May our approach, our heart, our mindset, how we do everything that we do be in the way of the Lamb. And that is what this whole series ultimately is about. Last week, we're going to take a couple of moments just to do a little bit of a review and kind of get us up to speed to where we're going to go today, because in a few minutes, we're going to talk about the Mark of the Beast, the Battle of Armageddon, and how it all ends. Or maybe how it doesn't end, because there may be a surprise. The revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John the prophet is composed in an apocalyptic style and prophecy which was a circular letter that went out 
to seven churches in Asia Minor or West Turkey to challenge and comfort those Christians who were suffering from either apathy or a lukewarm faith and living within the empire that they found themselves living or to comfort those Christians who were literally suffering from persecution because of their faithful witness to the Lamb of God under the Roman Empire. We were saying last week that the book of Revelation is not a secret code book for the end of the world. It's actually full of symbol that meant things to the people of its day and in its context as a way to jolt them, to challenge them, to think about the reality that they found themselves in and to think about what it means for them to be faithful followers of Christ in a world of violence and power and oppression. Last week, we were talking about one of the key ways that we need to understand and read the book of Revelation as being found in Revelation chapter 5. John's main symbol for Jesus in the book of Revelation is the lamb. The little lamb with seven eyes. Remember, it's a symbol. It's not literal. And it's a lamb who conquers his enemies by dying for them. He's the one, Revelation 5 tells us, who can open up the scroll that no one was worthy to open up this scroll that's going to tell the grand narrative of God's redemptive and restorative plan to bring his kingdom on earth as in heaven. The phrase the lamb is mentioned 28 times in the book of Revelation. And lion one time as a reference in Revelation chapter 5 to say, who's worthy to open the lamb? The one who comes from the lion from the tribe of Judah. And their symbol is the lion. And when John looks to find where's the lion, he in fact does not see a lion. He sees the lamb, which is the image that the book of Revelation in its apocalyptic form wants us to center on. Because this is the nature, the character, the way the content that the readers and the listeners of this letter, of these letters going out to the churches need to understand and need to be deeply connected to. As I said, it's not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. It uses symbols from Hebrew scriptures that mean things to its readers to guide them in how to think about their situation. And so we were summarizing last week by saying, that the lion is in fact the lamb. And this is our guiding story. The story plot of the book of Revelation is, will Jesus' followers faithfully endure the threat of Babylon, which is a symbol for Rome, and inherit the renewed world that God is creating? It's a challenge and it's an encouragement. Now, we started off with a bit of a bang last week by talking about a popular way of understanding the end times with a word that starts with the letter R called the what? Rapture. 
It's a very popular uh, teaching and understanding in the last couple of hundred years. And accidentally last week, I clicked a slide ahead. I bumped it and I went right into talking about the one verse that this teaching is based on found in Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. What I forgot to mention, even though it came up on the screen behind me, is how this idea took off. So in the 1900s, there's a gospel revival meeting happening, and there's a preacher there by the name of John Darby, who was one of the founding leaders of the Plymouth Brethren denomination. And there's a girl who's not well, and she has a vision. And in her vision, she sees, based on this idea in Thessalonians of Christians appearing to, to meet Jesus in the clouds at his return, she has this vision of that. So she tells John Darby, and he starts looking at the scripture and going, yes, this is it. This is how it's going to happen. And so he starts telling people, and then he goes to the United States from Scotland and England and tells a famous preacher by the name of D.L. Moody. Ever heard that guy's name? He was kind of like the Billy Graham of his day. And so D.L. Moody looks at the verse, hears the vision, goes, it's got to be God. It's the way it is. Starts preaching it everywhere he goes. All the listeners are going, wow, this is how it's going to happen. When Jesus comes back, partly, which is actually not in the Gospels or the New Testament, in this story, all the Christians are going to disappear and head off, be raptured from the earth, the word that's not found in the Bible at all. Also like the word Trinity, just to be fair. And they're going to meet Jesus in the clouds and, and we're going to be saved from, now depending on the next part of the story, but this was how they understood it at the time, a pre-tribulation, a period of suffering on earth, or a mid-tribulation or a post-tribulation. There's all these, these three different views around just that idea, which we're saying isn't actually what it's all about, which we'll unpack a little bit more today. And so um, this took off. And then what happened? Dion Moody's preaching this at Crusades everywhere based on this one badly misinterpreted verse in Thessalonians. We're saying which is understood as, as people go off into the clouds, they took it as a literal thing that would happen rather than a metaphorical picture that the Apostle Paul is painting as a way of saying this is the meeting which was common to the listeners of the day to go and meet a great leader, to go out from where they are and to meet them and then usher them, bring them back in with great welcome to the city, which was the idea that Paul's getting at in the letter to the Thessalonians which matches the gospel account, which matches the story of the book of Revelation, which is that it's not about people escaping from here to go to heaven, but people being faithful here on earth as Jesus' disciples so that we are participating in what God is ultimately going to complete in the renewal of all things, the restoration and the new Jerusalem or the new creation that God is bringing about. But then what happened in the 1900s was the Schofield Reference Bible. So you may see, when you pick up a Bible, sometimes there are study Bibles. It will say study Bible. Well, what's happened is uh, Bible teachers have you know, often come up with their own versions of these. They'll write notes in these uh, books to help guide us and help us have understanding about how to read the Bible. Sometimes it's helpful. Sometimes it's not helpful. And what happened was in the Schofield Reference Bible that played into this, Talk about, um, uh, uh, what's it called, when you, uh, bias, confirmation bias. In Matthew chapter 24, when Jesus is talking about 
judgment coming and he uses the picture of the flood from Noah's time. He uses it again as a symbol to say that those who refuse to walk the way of peace and the way of love and the way of Christ and the kingdom of heaven, they will be washed away in the flood. Okay, It's not literal, it's metaphorical. And there will be one gone and one left behind. And so in the, in the Schofield Reference Bible, the heading that was inserted over, Matthew, over this section was, Jesus predicts the rapture. But in fact, that's not even what the passage is about. Because the ones who are left behind are not the ones who weren't faithful like in the rapture story. It's the righteous who are left behind in this story. So it's kind of all messed up. And so you can see how this idea kind of took off and became a in just the last couple of hundred years, a kind of preeminent idea, which is part of the core theology of the Left Behind series and the books and all of that kind of teaching. And we sort of unpack that a bit. And if you want to know a little bit more about that, go and listen to last week's message. The problem with this theology, though, is I grew up in it. And it's not just an average idea that's like, it doesn't really matter, don't worry about it. It actually has impact. Because what you believe impacts the way you live. And so I had no need, desire, interest whatsoever in any kind of creation care when I grew up. What's the point of doing recycling? I didn't see the point. I thought, what a waste of time. What's the point of hugging a tree? I've never hugged a tree, just by the way. But what's the point of caring for creation? Interestingly, Martin Luther said... If I found out Jesus was returning tomorrow, I'd plant a tree today. In other words, his understanding was about faithfulness here and now. And God's new creation that he's restoring and redeeming and making all new. But the idea is that this type of theology creates an escapism for us from faithful witness, even in trial and tribulation, which is what John is trying to get at in the book of Revelation, encouraging the churches. It's very hard to focus on being a peacemaker when you're convinced that there's going to be tribulation and war that's out of our control that we can do nothing about and we're all going to take off anyway and then the world's going to destroy itself, it's going to be blown up and then we'll be off in heaven where there'll be this outside somewhere else, some new heaven and some new earth. But that is not the story and it is fundamentally not what Jesus taught us when he told us to pray. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. May your will be done. And may we be peacemakers. And all of Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount doesn't really seem to have a whole lot of significance if it's just hanging around waiting for this moment when we all take off. As a matter of fact, what it does is it actually corrupts the gospel message And the foundational call for us to change our minds, to repent, to do a 180 degree and in and join in in the kingdom of heaven on earth. What it does is it creates a gospel message that was popular in the 70s and 80s that goes something a little bit like this. If you were to die tonight, would you be in glory with God? And what happens if God comes back? What happens if the rapture happens before you have surrendered your life to Christ? So what instantly is the result? Fear. Whoa, I don't want that to happen. So I'm putting my hand up. I'm going out the front. I'm in on this thing. Phew, now I'm safe and waiting for that moment. In fact, the gospel message is not that. 
The gospel message is, turn from the way of the world, the way of sin, the way of shame, the way of death, the way of violence, and embrace the radical way of Christ and the kingdom of heaven. And participate in the here and the now and for the age to come. What God is doing in renewing and redeeming and restoring all things. And every time you play your part in that as a peacemaker, as someone who shows love and brings shalom wherever there is hell, you are a signpost, as Tom Wright says, to what is coming, to what God will ultimately complete on his return. And that is good news and something that we get to participate in the here and the now. Theologian, American theologian and scholar Scott McKnight says, the speculation readings of Revelation teach escapism and fail to disciple the church in the moral dissidence that shapes everything in the amazing book of Revelation. Escapism is as far from Revelation as Babylon is from New Jerusalem. So, in the book of Revelation, we begin the first book with the, the first three chapters primarily focusing around specific messages to the seven different churches. And then, again, as I said, this was a circular letter in which each church would hear what is being said and hear this whole prophecy read out to their church and their community. And then we get to chapters four and five where we have the vision of the throne room of God and the beginning of the opening of the scroll with the seven seals that's going to unpack for us God's redemptive plan for history and the world. And then we go into the next section of chapters, which is chapters pretty much 6 to chapter 20. It's a big section of the book of Revelation. And it centers around the judgments of God which should be probably more realistically seen in terms of the disciplines of God that lead us to restoration and healing for those who are willing to respond to God's correction. But it gets really tricky because the symbol and the metaphor and all the pictures are just like, woo! And if anyone's had a go reading it, can I get a show of hands? How many people have been reading through it? All right. You can start reading it and can be like, what on earth am I reading here? And it can get really tricky. So I want to talk for a few moments about this next little section because, and, and try and stay with me because it's challenging to try and unpack such a complex book in the short periods of time that we have. But what we miss today, we will come back to over the coming weeks because we're spending quite a few weeks unpacking this, including time to answer questions that people may have. And I want to reinforce again, as I said last week, if what I'm talking about is jolting or different or like, what, I haven't heard this perspective before, then I just want to say it's okay and God is with you and peace be on you and let's talk and discuss and ask questions and wrestle and there's space to disagree and you may have a, fam a, a favorite uh, teacher or preacher or a book that you've read that it resonates with you and you're like, this is just how I understand it and I disagree with what you're saying. Guess what? You're welcome in this place. But we have to wrestle with this stuff and so that's what we're trying to do in this series. So the cycle of the seven seals, which brings us to this next section of the book, um, we have three cycles of sevens. Now, remember from last week, I said that seven in John's teaching is a symbol for completeness. It's a way of 
him saying in this apocalyptic language, this is God's plan. Now we have in this next section of chapters, we have seven seals. And then we have seven angels and trumpets. And then we have seven bowls. Now how this has been commonly understood is um, that this is almost like a linear timeline of the unfolding judgments and tribulation that the people of the earth are going to go through, including the followers of Jesus. These three sets of seven divine judgments actually represent, in many people's thinking, a literal linear sequence of events that either happened in the past, that's one theology, or could happen now, or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But what's interesting for us to notice is that how John has woven all of the sevens together so that the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet of the angels and the seventh seal and the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. In other words, think of it a little bit like this. I like uh, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project says, um, they're like nesting dolls. Each seventh contains the next seven. And it's important for us to notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment. That they all have matching conclusions. In other words, what we're trying to say is, John's using each of these sets of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and the future return when he comes back again, but from three different perspectives. It's almost like three different angles of the same thing that's bringing all these different ideas and pictures together for John's listeners. Now, hopefully that helps you kind of get a bit of a clue about that as you kind of read through it. Now, what happens is during this section, there's like these pause moments where John gets through six of the seals and then he pauses and there's almost like an intermission where he then unpacks another idea. And then he'll go back to the next seven, but he stops at six. And then there's an intermission and then he goes into the next seven. And there's this kind of pattern that follows. Now, what we see during these chapters is, for instance, John introduces us to what's commonly referred to as the multi-ethnic army of the Lamb. We read about this in chapter 14. The open scroll reveals their strange mission. This is the strange mission of the followers of the Lamb. It's to follow the Lamb by bearing witness to God's justice and His mercy before the beastly nations even if it costs them their lives. It's about faithfulness. And they will conquer the beast that we read about because we read about, remember last week we talked about the different uh, characters. There's Team Dragon and there's Team Lamb. In Team Dragon, we have what's referred to as the unholy trinity. There's the dragon and the two beasts. The first beast that you read about, there's the beast of the sea and the beast of the, the earth. It's almost like an order. There's the beast who is subservient to the dragon, and then there's another beast who's kind of like the propaganda machine of the first beast. And there's a whole bunch of different bits and pieces going on, and it's in that context that we hear about the beast's mark, referred to as the mark of the beast. But what John is trying to do is to say that the the faithful followers 
of Jesus, they'll conquer the beast by laying down their lives just like the lamb. And this will move the nations to repentance. And as you go through, you see that in some of the sets of sevens, you see all these pictures that are just like the plagues or symbols of the plagues of Exodus from the Old Testament story of the the children of Israel in Egypt. And so what's happening here is John is pulling all of these symbols together and he's ultimately trying to say that even when God's judgments are poured out, the nations don't repent. They don't change. What they ultimately repent and change of as we get down the track and we see the end of the story unfolding is a response to the faithfulness of the witnesses of Christ, their faithful obedience in loving their enemies just like the Lamb does us. In other words, they follow the Lamb into the new creation and the nations are humbled. John's trying to show the churches that neither Rome and the symbol he uses for Rome or the Roman Empire is Babylon, nor any other nation or human is the real enemy. He's trying to say there are dark spiritual forces at work, which is why we say things like, we don't, or or Paul says, we're not in a battle against flesh and blood. Your enemy is not some other person. Your enemy is the principalities and powers of the unseen realm that work to encourage people to follow the way of the dragon, the way of violence and death and shame and oppression. And the invitation for us is to follow the way of the Lamb. And we do that when we announce Jesus' victory, both in word and by our lives, by being faithful and loving our enemies, just like the Lamb does. Now, in the first part of these three sevens, we we read about, anyone ever heard of the four horses? The four horses is a way of talking about It's actually an image from the book of Zechariah. They symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, the tragedy of a terrible day in human history. And then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christians, the martyrs who are before God's heavenly throne. And the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense. And they're told to rest because... There's going to be more Christians that this may happen to. We're not told why, but we are told it won't last forever. In other words, this is an encouragement to the people who are hearing this to remain faithful because the people who are hearing these letters, the last generation of Christians, many of them were slaughtered and taken out by the Emperor Nero. The mark of the beast that we read about in these chapters It's really a counterfeit mark because the scripture tells us that the people of God are sealed with a mark on their heads by God. In other words, these are God's people. And this is a counterfeit. This is a way of saying that the empires of this world are always trying to come up with their own sneaky way to mark people. And in this story and these pictures and these symbols that we have, the mark and the symbol is the number 666. And this has caused all kinds of phenomenon around the world because for many people, like when I was young, if you had a phone number and there was 666 in the phone number, you try to get that phone number changed. 
If there was 666 on your number plate, you'd try to get it changed. Because it was like, ah, we can't have the mark of the beast. I remember bank cards in the 1980s. Bank cards people thought was a sign of the end times because the, the B on it was like a six. And, and like you could see the, the sixes in there. It was like, ah, it's the mark of the beast. And every other like attempt to try and unpack this in a literal sense since. As a matter of fact, a famous preacher from Australia who's got an Instagram account at the moment currently has 666,000 followers. All my friends are like texting me going, reckon he's freaking out? I'm like, yeah, I reckon he desperately wants another 1,000 followers. But there's almost this paranoia around this idea when in fact what John is trying to say is that this mark, which in Hebrew numerology actually represented Emperor Nero when you broke down his name. This was a way of John in this apocalyptic writing saying that the beast serves the empire, or or, sorry, serves the dragon, which is a symbol for the devil and Satan, and that this empire that we call Babylon, which was Rome, has an emperor called Nero, who did horrendous things to the faithful followers of Christ. And his number is 666, which was also a reference to like, almost like an imperial stamp of saying, the empire is in charge, and this is our number, and this is our way, and you need to submit to this if you want to survive in this economy. It was not meant to be a way of us discerning who is the coming Antichrist, which again, a phrase that doesn't actually appear in the book of Revelation. It's a phrase used many times to refer to many people. In other words, anyone who is the Antichrist or is Antichrist is someone who is opposed to the way of Christ and chooses to walk the way of the dragon and the beasts. And again, the challenge is, who will we be faithful to? Who will the people of Israel Who will the people of uh, the Lamb be faithful to? So then we lead to the question of, well, what is and when will the battle of Armageddon happen? Anyone ever heard the expression, the battle of Armageddon? Can I get a show of hands? Okay, so when I grew up, the battle of Armageddon was a future literal battle that's going to take place around Israel in the Valley of Megiddo where... Millions of people will come and there will be a holy war between God's people and the peoples of the world and of the dragon and of the beast and of the Antichrist. Interestingly, this has become a massive theme and focus. And at times like this, it actually gets stirred up hugely. So our video on YouTube for last week's sermon got lots of listens, which was wonderful. The video just below it that just kept coming up We're getting like 887,000 views. And I was like, man. Because they were talking about, this is it. The time is coming now. Getting ready for the upcoming battle that's happening. This is a sign of the times. And it's all based around this one little verse in the book of Revelation that's like kind of hijacked the whole story a little bit like the story of the rapture. And I want to unpack this for a moment. Here's the scripture. Revelation chapter 16, verses 13 to 16 says, Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs. That's the symbol. Very out there. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world 
and they gather them to the battle on the great day of God Almighty. Verse 15, look, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed, which is a way of saying faithful, so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon means mountain of Megiddo, and it was actually a historical place of many battles. As a matter of fact, there's like, there's not really a mountain there, but there's a growing mount based on the amount of times that a a town was there that it was destroyed. You read about these stories in the Old Testament. 26 times this town was destroyed and rebuilt again. This is the logical setting for a symbol for battle of cosmic proportions. But remember, this is a symbol. This is not a literal battle that is going to happen. Because in fact, the battle never actually happens if you read the passages. He goes on and says that as the people, again in symbol, gather together, What John is wanting his readers and listeners to understand is this is a symbol for how time and time again. It'd be like if I named a famous war place where huge battles have taken place. If I just made a reference to that, you would know exactly what we mean. It's a place of war and of battle and of terrible things taking place. And I could use it as a metaphor to speak about other current realities. And what happens is The nations of the world, because the way of the beast always is about violence and battle and warfare and the sword and the destruction of people. And they are coming together to fight this battle against the followers of the Lamb. But interestingly, what happens is no literal battle takes place. What ends up happening that we read in Revelation chapter 19, verse 13, is that Jesus comes with the name Faithful and True. And again, this is a picture. He comes on a white horse and his robe is dipped in his own blood. It says a blood-dipped robe. But of course, no battle has taken place. What is the blood of his robe? It's a symbol of the, it's a symbol of the fact that he's the lamb who's been slain already. He has died for his enemies. And then it shows us this symbol of a sword coming out from his mouth. And that sword is the Word of God. And it's this Word of God that is brought in judgment to those of the dragon, of the beast, and of the followers of that way who refuse to walk in repentance to the way of the Lamb. And as we get to chapter 20, we actually get to what's called the final judgment We're in this final judgment. God once and for all and decisively deals with evil and violence and death and shame. And they are cast into this other symbol called the lake of fire, which is a way of saying everything that is evil and bad will be destroyed. And then we see the beginning of the unfolding beauty and story of the new Jerusalem or the new creation, which is an invitation to the way of life and shalom, as Teresa said earlier in the prayer, forever. Now, here's the crazy thing about this. 
God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets, they don't generate repentance. But the lamb, he conquers his enemies by loving them and by dying for them. This is the message of the lamb's scroll. And it reveals his mission to his church, the army, the witnesses that we read about, the 144,000, which is a symbol of God's people. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the lamb and not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It's God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. This is the surprising claim of the message. Both Armageddon and New Jerusalem are symbols, but they are true symbols of a very alternative unfolding story. Brian Zahn says the way of the beast leads to Armageddon, but the way of the lamb leads to the new Jerusalem. And we, are, we have to make a decision. Who will we follow? And our challenge as God's people is to be the church that bears witness to the nations and inherits the new creation. In other words, the theme of this series is let's be faithful in following the lamb into the new creation. So on this last slide that I want to show, we have a choice to make every single day of our lives. Will we choose Babylon or New Jerusalem? Will we choose the dragon or the lamb? Will we choose war or will we choose peace? Will we compromise or be faithful lamb-like resistance? This is the challenge. Revelation chapter 1 verses 5 to 8 says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he's coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the people on earth, they'll mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Now, I'm going to invite the musicians to come forward. Let me summarize this by saying this. There's this idea that for Jesus to return, there has to be this epic battle. It's false. It's not the gospel. Every time we see a battle, a war, we see the systems and the violence and the cycle of this world happening again and again and again. It's an invitation for us to actually engage in the gospel message that Jesus preaches, which is an invitation for us to be peacemakers. Otherwise, the whole Sermon on the Mount doesn't make sense. Jesus says, love your enemies. But then some people are saying, but he's going to come back as a warrior and he's going to destroy them. He's going to slaughter them at the Battle of Armageddon. This is a common idea. So what? Jesus is going to abandon all of his teaching to his disciples, to actually come and do the very thing that he said don't do? That doesn't make sense. But lots of people think that because as I said last week, the common phrase has been, he died as a slaughtered lamb and he returned to heaven as the lamb of God, but he's coming back as a mighty warrior. He's coming back as the lion. And that's their way of saying he's coming back to destroy his enemies in this battle. As a matter of fact, he's actually coming back to show them with the word of truth, faithful and true, that the way of the dragon and the beast and the way of Babylon only leads to destruction. But the way of the lamb leads to New Jerusalem. 
So every time, every micro battle that you face as a parent, as a friend in your workplace, when you feel persecuted for your faith or your beliefs or whatever it is that is happening for you, this is not an invitation to wage a war of a bigger war that's going to happen one day. This is an invitation to love as Christ loved us, to love as the Lamb has laid down His life, to demonstrate to the world the alternative story that God has always invited us into, that this way leads to death and destruction, but Jesus' way leads to love and to life. And may we be faithful even when it costs us our lives. God help us. That is not most of our realities. But throughout history, many people have faithfully followed the way of the Lamb to their death. And the promise is, they are not forgotten. They will have the great rewards of those who are faithful. They will be part of God's new world that He's making and redeeming and restoring. But this faithful witness in the clouds cheer us on to be faithful in following Jesus in the way, His radical way of love. So here's my challenge. I made myself watch videos this week that I don't want anyone else to watch, that I wanted to be affected when I saw people in Israel slaughtered by evil violence. And then I've watched the parents and the children of Palestinian people, including Christians, Christian Palestinians, being destroyed by bombs. And I look at this hell on earth and I don't, as some sick part of our religion does, celebrate that and rejoice in that because the day is coming ever closer when Jesus will return. And that this is just all part of what the Bible tells us has to happen. No. The invitation in the now is always, if you follow the way of the dragon and violence and tell me they're excited, you will only get more of that. But if you follow the way of the Lamb, you will walk closer to the city, the new city of Jerusalem. And our faithful responsibility is to not pick sides on whether you're for Israel or you're for the Palestinians or who you're for, but to say, we are for every single person on this planet, no matter who, including our enemies. Because Jesus told us to. He said, love your enemies. And I don't know about you, but I don't know how to do that. I am terrible at loving my enemies. But as I make little steps to have my heart transformed in the way of the Lamb, I do what we will hear a song sung tonight. When I look in the face of my enemy, I actually see my brother created in the image of God. And that's the miracle of love. Is there tension in everything I'm saying? 100%. But how will we be faithful? How will we be peacemakers? How will we pray and say, God, have mercy. May this not go on another day because it doesn't have to. You can choose the way of the land, the nations, the leaders, the kings, the prime ministers, the rulers, everyone can drop their swords and they can turn them into plowshares and they can say, let us walk the way of peace. In Jesus' name, would you stand with me, please? 
If you can't tell, I feel a little bit passionate about this. We should lament. We should mourn. We should grieve. We should cry out. And we should say, God, have mercy. Have mercy. And may we be faithful in our words, in our actions, in everything we do, in looking past what the systems of this world say we should focus on and focus on the one who is faithful and true. And may we love as he loves us, who were once his enemies. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, pour out your peace, pour out your mercy. Lord, turn the hearts of people towards your way of radical love. And may we remember that you are not a God of violence. You are a non-violent Saviour who refused to act out violence, but only spoke your word of judgment and of life and of hope with the sword that comes forth from your mouth, which is the words of life, which is the words of challenge to repent and flee and turn from everything that is of death and in Hades. Oh Lord God, may we continue to repent and change. And may we walk the path of peace and justice and mercy. And would you help us to be faithful? Would you help us to be faithful, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us sing and worship the Lamb who was slain. Thanks for listening to the Good Life Podcast today. Remember that you can stay up to date with the podcast by subscribing on whichever platform you're listening to right now. If you're interested in our ongoing conversation where we're delving deeper and asking questions about what we're talking about on Sundays, be sure to check out the Pondering episodes in the same feed. Otherwise, we would love it if you could like, follow, and even give us a five-star review. It all helps in getting the good news out there. You can also head to our website, goodlife.org.au, or our YouTube for video content and resources. Until next time, peace.